live. <laughs> Welcome everyone. This is the 19th episode of the Readiness Report. Yes. I'm Silky Tuba. And I'm Aaron Singerman. And you're opening the show. Role reversal tonight. <laughs> I was just actually texting Alan I'm the Dershowitz. pitcher, you're the catcher. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I like this role reversal. <laughs> or even all of it all together, I think. But, but uh, yeah, I was texting Alan to uh, let, him, uh, let him know that we're doing the news first. That's how the show works. Yeah, luckily he's patiently waiting. Yes, he, he actually, I got to give uh, Alan Dershowitz credit. Of all the guests we ever had, uh, he was the earliest to the show. I guess he wanted to check the link and make sure it worked, which is, I appreciate, right? But you'll notice too, like between him, General Petraeus, there's a few people that are very dil- it was like very timely, made sure they were in or like on time was early. Yes. So yes. definitely you could tell like certainly- so we had a few people that have definitely been uh, well General Petraeus is as you'd expect, right? He was very uh very on task the entire time, all the communications, everything. Yep. Uh and then the, the polar opposite, Roger Stone, <laughs> who we like checked out like twenty-five times with before. And then he still was uh, 15 minutes, 20 minutes late. And then still never came on video. Yeah, there we go. Still now, to the office. No, no. Yes, uh, giving uh, Roger credit, uh, he is any supposed to come to the office next week. He said, you know, he did text me and everything. So we'll see. But uh, wow, yeah. it's like that dad that went off for a pack of cigarettes and never came back. It's like, yeah, I'll be there next week. I'll be there next week. <laughs> Rudy, you know yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, let's uh, let's let's first, you know, for people who are watching for the very first time. You know, the show is a question and answer show, although we don't always get to questions. And I know Alan's time is limited, so we'll do our best. If there's a question that's really uh, interesting and different, we will do our very best to answer it. If we don't answer it or ask it right away, don't lose hope. We could ask it later on. And we're, Ryan over there is show Ryan, Johnny show Ryan. And yes, you guys want to come Ryan, Ryan, Johnny. Ryan, let's see what's up on a hot topic today. Did he? Yeah, it's like an email. It's like, are you like a Robert Smith from the Cure? I got a new I got a new beard going. That's a new beard. Yes. So if you do have a question for Alan, please, of course, you can ask it on Facebook Live and it's, I mean, uh, uh, YouTube Live, but you can also text it to Ryan at 561-473-4673. And, and that is not actually Alan's number, in case you're wondering. So can you're texting Ryan. Ryan's number one? Yeah, that'd be fun. Oh, accident. He'd probably love it. He'd probably love it. You're saying that. He probably love talks it. to half the people that are. Probably so. He'll, he'll love it. Okay. So. The first thing I wanted to talk about is actually not one of our official news stories, is the side effects of the election. And not the side effects you may think, the side effects uh, in terms of the market. We always when we talk over here and there about the stock market and how things affect the stock market. And we actually have a story about Tesla later on. But one of the, uh, one of the interesting effects is people are very, very um, interested, worried about what's going to happen either direction for election. If you remember, Eric, in 2016, people were worried uh, if Trump were to win, they were going to say, they were saying like, oh, the market will crash. It's going to be a disaster. But instead, the market went, obviously, as we all know, went way up. It's as strong as the economy had been. Strong as the economy well, had been. Unemployment. And, and Trump reminds us of that all the time, is that, yeah, all those facts. And, uh, and that happened as a result of people, I guess, believing that uh, he was a business, uh, well, he's certainly a businessman president, but he was a business first guy and, and that he was taking that very seriously, and, and the market responded to that and, and felt confident about it. You know? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, now there's just a lot of uncertainty because it's it's there's no in between anymore. It is so polarizing of left to right. There's no like middle ground. Yeah, it's like you are either completely liberal or you are staunch Republican. It is. It it's really insane. Is. And, and and for people out there, you know, we had uh, my investment guys come to the office recently. Jeremy yeah, office yeah. and the team, Kevin and those guys came and they're really worried. Uh, they only have 30 clients. It's like a, a multifamily office. And a lot of their clients have uh, capital gains they've had for 20, 30, 40 years, you know? 
And so now if the capital gains, so that's one of the things people may not know is capital gains tax. If, if, uh, if Trump doesn't win, if Biden wins, he plans to change it to the same as ordinary income tax. Uh, 40%. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, his, his tax is almost 40%, 39%. So if that's actually happens for people out there who've been, you know, basically never, uh, realizing their gains, all of a sudden your gains go from, you know, 20 to 40, that's a dramatic thing. And then also for, we're talking about corporate taxes changing and a lot of other things that would really fundamentally change business as we know it in America. Well, that's the thing I think people forget. Like a lot of these, whether it's Marxism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, they sound great if you're on the other side of it and you don't have anything. But, you know, when you have a corporation that all of a sudden gets hit with all these taxes, they're just going to move. They're going to pull the business out of the U.S. for the most part. Um, just like if you're someone that's wealthy enough, your money's going to go somewhere else. It's going to come out of play in the country. They're going to get no taxes from those people. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those things. There's no free lunch, right? So, um, and for people like, even the smaller businesses like us, we have 120, 25 employees here. We have um, 15 to 20 at the gym. And uh, we are, you know, lucky to be able to hire more people and continue to scale the business for a lot of reasons. But if things change dramatically, uh, taxes change and, and business law changes, uh, um, who knows? Would, that, would those same opportunities to scale a business be there? I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because you and I have that conversation a lot of people don't see taxes. They see a business that's successful. Oh, they must be rolling the money. It's like, well, the taxes alone could cripple you, you know, yes. if you don't plan properly. Especially a company that's scaling and doing really well, you know, that's, a, that's definitely something for sure that people don't expect. And then, you know, I never expected is that when the business is profitable, you may not be taking enough money out of the business because the business is scaling to actually pay your taxes Yeah, because all your money's got to sit yeah. in the warehouse for inventory of course but then you never get the money because it's on terms and and there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of that that people don't expect including me i mean you know i didn't i didn't certainly didn't expect that another big thing is relationship effects you know we have all these people out there who are now really polarized in terms of their relationship uh with their wife or their employer or their friends and now you know robert Conley, our, our vp of finance was telling me one of his best friends for many years got into a for 30 years got into a huge argument uh over dinner um, because you know, he, the, the friend was a, a, a Biden supporter and he's a Trump supporter and they got in this huge argument and they're not friends anymore. It's like crazy. You know, again, people just can't have a conversation and there'd be like a, just a healthy understanding of like, Hey, this is your point of view. This is mine. You know, it, it's like, it's, it's everything's like this now. Yeah. Intelligent conversation is, or disagreement, even, even uh, discussion is, is, is ending. Yeah. I mean, you just think about it, like debate. That's a great thing. Being able to talk. Yeah. Two different people from two different backgrounds, two different points of view. Again, you may not agree in the end, but you can at least understand one another. And now there's not even a, oh, nobody even wants to understand. It's no. just like F you and bye. Agreed. Agreed. So let's go to our first actual news story. We're going to run through these and we get to Alan Dershowitz as fast as we can. So uh, Walmart, Walmart ups the ante in contactless delivery. So they, as we know, Walmart, because we're going to be in Walmart next month with uh, the Red Cohen products. So uh, delivery, they, they've been doing great with their actual um, the curbside, curbside del delivery. So Increased their business almost 30%. And that's a huge deal. Well, they're actually testing the drones right now, uh, drones for homes in Las Vegas. So this is uh, something that Amazon has been looking into for years and years and years. And now Walmart is trying to catch up in a bunch of different ways with, you know, Amazon Prime. They have their their new service, Walmart, was it uh, Plus, is it? Walmart Plus. Walmart Plus, Plus right. Uh, where they're trying to compete. I mean, they're the second biggest uh, marketplace, right? And, uh, and they've been very uh, proactive with us, I'm sure with many, many, many other uh, businesses. Whoa, Johnny, Johnny, don't do that. Oh, oh. Jesus, Johnny, you should never pull the plug. 
Jesus. <laughs> it was going so smooth, Johnny, until you did that. Show us Johnny. Johnny, he's turning red. He's he is uh he even, there he is. We need to do guitar protection. Um I don't know why he pulled the plug in the first place. He started pouring the plugs out. It wasn't like I was talking where yeah. you needed to pull the plug. Um <laughs> <laughs> so um so th this is the the new advance, and they're working on this contact contactless customer service and delivery uh to to meet with the, the needs of people. Yeah, it's interesting. Like what was it, a week ago, two weeks ago, we talked about you know with some of these mergers where uh wasn't allowed because it wasn't a tech oh it was with um yeah yeah so but you know with the drones i get it that's a logistics piece but it really is a tech piece so it's interesting that that's allowed but so someone must be wanting to push amazon a little um you know that's being allowed but again what walmart's twice the size of amazon yeah you know walmart. from a revenue standpoint walmart's it's the biggest 512 billion dollars last year in revenue Crazy. so yeah i got deep enough pockets to do it and then the partnership with quest diagnostics to deliver COVID kits right so yeah collecting some insurance money too along the way like <laughs> yeah they're, do they're doing all right so who knows maybe that do you think they'll beat amazon to the race to uh drone delivery delivery well if you think about it even though walmart or amazon is a logistics company for moving packages walmart moves probably more goods than them just because of does, the trucking so they may have some of that stuff more mapped because they're not using third parties to do it they do it themselves so they might be might be better suited for it it could be. So our uh, next story on our list is Tesla slock, stock slides on battery day as it disappoints. So uh, the Tesla stock is something we've covered a bunch uh, on the show because it's made an incredible, crazy oh. increase. I mean, five times during COVID and five X during COVID. And I remember when, split, yeah, right? when, when I, yeah, when well, it's just recently split five times split yeah. also. Uh, Apple was four times split and they were five times split, which interestingly, we talked about that where like people are excited about that. It was like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing, which yeah, is funny. It's like you took a dollar or $5 bill and you turned it into ones. Yeah, and people are excited. Yeah. I mean, I guess it seems more affordable, but um, so anyway, uh, we, uh, my wife and I, Darielle had a, uh, a Tesla. And one of the things that was a big problem was the batteries, you know, the battery would, would degrade and then run out. And so one of the big things about battery day is we're going to unveil the, unveil this 1 million mile battery. And that was the big thing is a 50% reduction in, in pack cost for this fantastic battery. And they thought that this is going to significantly increase sales and was going to be a big driver. And unfortunately for them, it wasn't, you know, and, and, and stock actually slid down for the first time in a while. It's been up to the right for quite some time. Well, the other thing too, is that, you know, they're probably getting a lot of pressure from companies like Lucid, Nikola, you know, that there's some newer, it seems like there's, again, I'm not as techie on that. I mean, I'm a car guy, but there's different battery technology coming out that's not lithium based where it has more sustainability because obviously the and we own the tesla together but yeah. you know the mining for the lithium is like talking about destruction it's way worse than fossil fuels yeah um but you know so obviously battery technology like state of california just said by 2035 no more sales of gas cars but battery technology better become a long way because in one to your point they need to last longer because yeah. when the these tesla batteries is done how do you dispose of all that lithium ion and radiation yeah. from it? And so, um, yeah, obviously this is an important thing, but I don't know how exciting that is though for a company like Tesla, where they tend to generate money from the announcement of the semi. New releases, new releases. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, because I wonder how this stock was on the day they announced that the new Plaid edition of the Model S, which kind of pissed me off. Yeah, she's, she's got one. It's trying to say we're sharing, we're sharing one. It's kind of weird, but yeah, we are. Sharing. Goes back to our yeah. opening conversation. Yeah. <laughs>
Yes. So where we are sharing one, although I'd say you're driving it now mostly. Yeah. Uh, but um, because I drive, you know, quarter of a mile to work now. <laughs> yeah, quarter mile to work, quarter mile to gym, quarter mile. Easy home. life. Yeah, easy life for sure. So it'll be interesting to see where uh, Elon Musk takes this company in the future. I, I definitely am a big believer for for sure now on where it's going to go, and uh, you know, I'm excited for to see where it's going to go. You know? Yeah. Well, again, I, I think obviously they've been the uh, you know the champions and they're the ones that have been leading battery technology so i'm assuming they're always going to set the flag further than anyone everyone's going to chase but yeah it'd be interesting how it goes so uh nicola you brought nicola and we're going to go to that story next week oh, okay there's a, there's some drama for sure oh yeah with that you know and there's some some serious controversy but uh we want to run through the stories i wanted to talk very briefly because i do want to ask alan about justice ruth bader ginsburg she died at 87 this is you know news around the world and something that's been talked about you know uh, from by everybody, by every news outlet, and everybody obviously not only uh, uh, respects her, but it has uh, talked in depth about her life and and her accomplishments. And so, uh, I don't want to go too deep into that because I will I will ask Alan a tiny bit about that because he has a lot of experience. I'm assuming assuming he had met uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and also uh, the movie. I have to say at least that that uh, Jerriel, my wife, and I watched the documentary. I the showed Netflix you the trailer. Yeah, the the Netflix documentary. I showed to you the trailer today. It's a great watch trailer. It, it was a great. Yeah. It was a great movie. Great trailer. Uh, very engaging uh, documentary. And so, uh, sure, it's got to be getting. I mean, obviously, very popular now. It's yeah. And then there's a movie on the basis of sex that came out. Yeah, yeah. Year. And that was and that was great too. But this uh, documentary, I have to recommend for everybody who hasn't, you know, is not up to speed on the things she's done and accomplished along her very uh, very accomplished life. You know. Yeah, co-founded ACLU. I mean, yeah, she's had a long. I mean. Her fight for civil rights, yeah, has been been massive. Yeah. So uh, let's go to the commercial break, and we'll be right back with Alan Dershowitz. It's a unique time in the world right now. You might've let your diet go. Getting to the gym probably is pretty difficult or for maybe for some of you guys, impossible. When I started thinking about doing another readiness trials, I figured people probably right now have real life issues. Like they're depressed or their finances, you know, lost a job, maybe even lost a loved one. So that's probably not the right time to do a transformation contest, right? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I remember the moment when that all went through my head and I was like, wait, hell no, this is the best moment for a distraction for a goal, for a focus that isn't the news. I mean, the news is crazy. It's a great way to refocus your mind on something that isn't negative, like the riots, defunding the police, viruses, Kanye West for president. I have decided 
in 2020 to run for president. If you ask me a goal and a journey, plus being part of a community that are all going after the same thing is exactly what you need right now. We've done seven readiness trials now, and it's gotten bigger and better every time. We can't stop now. We're going even bigger. Last time we gave away $75,000 in cash and prizes, and our grand prize winner, Michael Sparks, won $50,000. This time we are truly going bigger, $100,000. That's right, 100 grand. And it's not even the biggest change. The biggest change was you spoke and we listened. And we're now going to have 15 cash winners with the top five people winning $10,000. And for the first time ever, we're gonna have free coaching to help you make the most dramatic change. We even enlisted the help of some of our celebrity coaches and judges, Jesse Bowen, Adam Shearer, and Martin Ford. It sucks to say, but if the money and the goals aren't enough, think about your health. We're learning a lot about COVID, and there's a tremendous amount of confusion and even misinformation out there. But one thing we know for sure is that people who are in better physical shape do much better if they catch it. Having a body mass index of 30 or higher actually increases a person's risk of developing a severe case of COVID-19 by 27%. And a body mass index of 40 or higher doubles the person's risk. That's what the Harvard doctors say. You can either enter by buying one of the Redcon 1 readiness stacks, or if you're already loaded up on Redcon 1 subs, you can buy a ticket to enter the contest for $75. Tickets will go on sale August 15th. When you buy either the stack or the tickets, you'll receive an email exactly explaining how you're gonna enter and how to submit the pictures. Don't worry, we won't show your pictures to anybody unless you're a finalist for the money. Before submissions are due August 24th through the 31st. You'll have that rolling week to decide when you want to start, and then you're going to have 12 weeks from that point forward to finish the contest. Remember, this is a transformation challenge, not a physique or bodybuilding competition. The best and most dramatic change will be rewarded. Look, 2020 hasn't gotten off to a good start. I'd like to challenge you to hit the restart button with Redcon 1 and change your life forever. Are you looking to build muscle, burn fat, or just have your pants fit a little bit better? Now's your chance to get the results you want while saving 40% off your order at redcon1.com. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, use the code WAR40 to save 40% off your entire order. All of our award-winning supplements, including our protein powders, fat burners, pre-workouts, BCAAs, and vitamins are at the deepest discount of the year. Redcon 1 is the best supplements to help you reach your goals, but available only while supplies last. Visit redcon1.com to start saving now. Do you want to know the secrets the pro gamers use to dominate? War Games, our enhanced gaming nootropic formula, is now available to the public. This professional-grade formula unlocks hyper-focus, enables split-second reaction time, and supports eye health during long gaming sessions. War Games comes in one formula with three great-tasting flavors. Claim your 30-serving War Games right now before it sells out. Limited supply available. Click now to buy. I want to welcome to the show... Uh, arguably and known as the best criminal attorney in the world, uh, professor of Harvard since 25 years old, Alan Dershowitz. Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate of it. Of course, Alan, thank you. It's, it's Honestly, it's an honor to have you on the show. We really appreciate it. I personally appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you. So, Alan, so um, before we you know get going with some of the questions, I wanted to start with a little bit of your history. And, and when the first time we spoke on the phone, I don't know if you remember or not, but the first time we spoke on the phone, I said to you, I, I read your book and I was, I was so excited and impressed. I'm happy to talk to you. And you said, which book I've written? I don't know. How many books have you written, Alan? 44. I'm oh, just 44. finishing my 45th. Just finished my 45th. 
Which, which one was the 45th? The 45th is one I'm writing about the current process of nominating and uh, confirming a justice to the Supreme Court. Oh, it, it's called it's Confirming right. Justice or Injustice. Ah, that's that's uh, pretty applicable. That's a good timing for that, uh, Callan. Yeah. So we we I uh, we talked and I and I said the book was taking a stand. Uh, my life in the law. Right. And uh, and I loved. First off, I love the book. And there's a lot of great, a lot of great parts in the book. But the the first chapter, I played it actually. I, I bought the. I read the book and then I bought the audio book and I played for my wife the first chapter because the first chapter is kind of like your. The best way to put it is like your CV, you know, this is your, right. your, your resume. And it was so unbelievable. And I wouldn't ask you to repeat it because it's like an hour long. But, <laughs> but if you could surmise, you know, the, the more exciting parts, the things that were more meaningful for you in your history, uh, could you do that? Sure. I grew up as a wise guy. I mean, I wasn't a good student. Uh, I was constantly being suspended from school. Uh, my mother was called so often to the school that people thought she worked there. And um, I was a straight C student. Um, and that was true in elementary school and high school. And then I managed to get myself into Brooklyn College because they had an exam you could take. And I was a good exam taker. And then I finished first in my class among the men in Brooklyn College and then first in my class among everybody at Yale Law School. So I went from a straight C student to a straight A student. My mother always said, get B's. And I never got a B in my life, just C's and A's. Um, so, Alan, you know, you brought up that that was something I loved in the book is uh, going to yeshiva, right? You went to yeshiva. Yeah. And uh, so I have a kind of how we got in touch originally is my Chabad rabbi reached out to the, uh, your Chabad rabbi at Harvard, uh, Rabbi Hershey. And uh, and I told my my guy, uh, Arale, I'm sure I'm just watching right now, Arale Gopin, I said, how is this possible? Like, you're, you know knowing him, and I don't know a lot of uh, religious rabbis that would be teaching at a yeshiva, obviously, but I, he, my guy is so like amazing and open-minded. Yeah. And, yeah. and I told him like, this is so disappointing. Like how can Alan have this problem? But he said, this is, this is not that unusual is that some people are in life, right? The same as life. They're, they're closed-minded. And, and so they don't want to hear an argument from somebody. Oh, look, there's no question about that. One of the things I didn't like about going to yeshiva is because the rabbis would sometimes tell me what to think. And I always wanted to think for myself. And uh, just because some rabbi a thousand years ago said something doesn't make me want to necessarily accept it or believe it. Uh, the rabbis ask great questions, but they didn't always ask answers that are particularly relevant to modern day. So I rebelled a little bit against my rabbis. I was also, you know, I, I was always very funny. The students liked me. And I was a good athlete. I played uh, varsity basketball. In fact, I played in Madison Square Garden in 1954, and I guarded a young man uh, whose name was Ralphie Lipschitz. I think you've heard of him. His yeah. name is now Ralph Loren. And he played for the opposing school. They beat us in Madison Square Garden. He wasn't a particularly great ball player, but he really dressed well. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Alan, so with, in terms of your, your, after you, uh, went through Yale and you, you had a very, I mean, a story to say a storied career that you've accomplished a lot would be a huge understatement in terms of your professional career. When you left school and you, um, went out on your own, um, you, well, you went to, you went to Harvard, obviously as a professor at 25, could you give a, a very short outline considering I know that there's so much of after that? 
Well, I was very lucky. You know, I was uh, asked to come to Harvard. I was very, very young. I had students in my class who were older than I was. David Gergen was one of my students. Um, you know, I had a lot of students, um, many of them now judges, justices on the Supreme Court. And I taught 10,000 students and I litigated probably 250 cases. I've handled 27 homicide cases, either murder, attempted murder, conspiracy to murder. And I've won 23 of the 27. So a, a pretty good record. Um, and one of them, the one one that I lost. We lost you, Alan. Seeing a case, you know, you can lose a case temporarily, but uh, there's always a possibility. I... Alan, Alan, your your uh, microphone went out all of a sudden. You got you got it. Try again, Alan. See, let's see if you can hear you. You were doing, it just suddenly went out. No. So, I don't know if you switch feeds on and off. He, he looks like he's logging off and going back on. Yeah, no, not even the best thing to do. Um, so the, the one thing that uh, Alan, you know, he's, He's been involved with cases like O.J. Simpson trial. He's part of the oh, dream yeah. team. He was talking about uh, being an appellate expert, which is something that we're going to talk about. I wonder later. if that's because, you know, again, from the few cases that he lost, I wonder if that's where he just was like, okay. Yeah, that's, I'm assuming that's what he means when he said he came back. And then, you know, yeah, um, that's a, the interesting. So if people haven't read the book, Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law, I mean, he's got a lot of great, a lot. I mean, obviously, he's got uh, you know, 40, what is 44 books? This is be his 45th. 45th book. Most so, people haven't read that many probably. 45 presidents also. It's yeah, 40, 45 books. So um, this book uh, is his autobiography. And incidentally, it's read by his daughter in the auto, uh, the actual audio book, which was fantastic. His, his daughter is actually an actress and uh, did a phenomenal job reading the book. Obviously, a girl reading in Alan's voice, you'd assume maybe not so good, but man, she was fantastic. Um, not just because she's an actress, but obviously she probably knows his intonations and yeah, he knows her father very well. I was very impressed. And when I played it for Jerry she's like, wow, she did like an awesome job, you know? God, what'd my autobiography be like? You're you're in the middle of it. How would you know right now? So they wrote it now. How are we doing? There we okay. Go. Okay, we're back. I was okay. talking Alan, about about your daughter reading the uh, audiobook and how fantastic yeah. she was for this for that book. And my wife was like, I can't believe that she was so good. I'm like, well, she knows his intonations, she knows uh -huh. his, you know, she's also a professional actor. She's yeah, been in like 10 off-Broadway plays. Of course, there's no acting now. So she's actually enrolled in uh, law school online. So who knows? <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Well, she was, well, so she, you know, you could tell her, me and uh, Jerry, my wife thought she was fantastic. Right? Oh, good. I'll tell her that. I will. Yeah. So you asked what an appellate lawyer does. An appellate lawyer is the guy who does the autopsy on the trial. If the trial results in a conviction, I read the uh, the transcript. I see what went wrong at the trial, and I try to reverse it on appeal. I try to win the case on appeal. You remember the Klaus von Bülow case. He was convicted of twice attempting to murder his wife. Everybody thought he was guilty. And I took the case, and we won on appeal. Then he had a new trial, and we won at the new trial. So that's what I do a lot. I come into the case often 
after there's been a conviction. I actually do much better when I come into the case early because I can then frame the issues and help develop the strategies. And uh, but uh, you know, it's I've been doing this now for 55 years, and uh, I think I know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think that's a safe assumption. And um, so one of the one of the interesting things with that is that uh, when you look at a case after the fact, you're able to, I'm assuming you're able to see mistakes or things that sure. the prosecution or that the, even even the defense, right, could have done differently. And how often does it happen, not when, when Alan Dershowitz, when you're doing it, but in a normal situation, how often does the appeal actually get overturned? Uh, 2%, uh, usually. And of course, I have a much, much higher rate of reversal, um, but 2% is the average. Um, in the federal courts. In state courts, it may be as high as 4%. I know of no state where it's higher than 5%. So it's a, a low probability uh, win. Uh, sometimes you can get sentences reduced, but to actually get the conviction reversed, we're below 5%. And so any appellate lawyer who's anywhere near 40% or 50% is uh, doing, uh, is doing a, a, a great job. And it also depends on how difficult the case is. Uh, murder cases are very, very difficult. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I'll give you an example of how I handle a murder case. So a woman uh, came to me. She had been married to the head of Binion's Casino. That's where the World Series of Poker started. And she was a young woman. She had been a, an exotic dancer. And Mr. Binion, who was much older, fell in love or lust with her, don't know which, and they, they got married, and then uh, she had a boyfriend on the side, and he ended up dead. And the theory was that the boyfriend and her had compressed his chest and prevented his lungs from expanding and killed him that way. And the evidence was they found a mark on him, which was exactly the same as the mark as the button. So the proof was that somebody had pressed the button and caused the mark. Seemed pretty convincing. When I took the case, I took the photographs of the mark to the head of pathology at Harvard Medical School, and he expanded it and under a microscope and concluded that it wasn't a bruise at all. It was a birthmark that he had had all of his life. And we proved that. And as a result of that, uh, uh, she went free. And she now calls me every year on my birthday to thank me for saving her life. And she's now happily married with children. She was totally innocent, but uh, she was going to spend the rest of her life in prison. So it was very gratifying to win cases like that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Alan, so I know you already know, but what, what's your percentage? So if 4%, if 6% is average and 40% is good. It's much higher, but I can't, I'm not going to get into the specific percentages, <laughs> but it's much, much higher. I do very well. And, very, very uh, you know, um, I also do consulting. I do a lot of work now transnationally uh, for people who are involved in multiple countries. Uh, a typical case is, you know, a guy is an Israeli citizen, but he lives in Houston, Texas. And he allegedly bribed somebody in Africa using money that went through a Swiss bank uh, from a British corporation. And so all the countries are after him. They all have different rules. And for me, it's like a great puzzle to try to figure out how to give advice to somebody like that. For example, in Switzerland, if you don't answer questions, that can be held against you. But if you do answer the questions, then those answers can be used against you in the United States where you have the Fifth Amendment. So you have to figure out a way of balancing the advantages and disadvantages of testifying or not testifying. Very, very difficult and intriguing problems. But 
I love that. If I were a doctor, you know, I'd be a brain surgeon and I'd want to operate on the, or a heart surgeon, the most difficult cases. So as an appellate lawyer, I like to take the most difficult cases, which is why I took some of the most unpopular cases I've taken. O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Epstein, President Trump. Um, boy, did I lose friends over President Trump. Uh, and, but at least I didn't get falsely accused of anything. When I took the Jeffrey Epstein case, a group of lawyers got together. They figured they're making money off me. And they'll use an act. They'll accuse me of having sex with one of the women, which I never met. I never heard of her. never met her. In order to get a billion dollars from Leslie Wexner. So these lawyers publicly accused me and then privately went to Wexner and said, Listen, look, Wexner, the same woman who accused Dershowitz accused you seven times of having sex. And she said, you made her wear Victoria's Secret uh, lingerie. Uh, we can do to you what we did to Dershowitz. And uh, if you pay us, we won't. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's uh, the way it works. And so I stood accused. I proved my innocence beyond any doubt. I have her emails, which she tried to suppress, which she admits she never met me. I have a manuscript of a book she tried to deep six in which she describes all the people she had sex with, not me. She said she saw me once, never had sex with me. I have a recording by her lawyer admitting that she was wrong. I have a recording by a best friend that um, she was pressured into falsely accusing me. But notwithstanding all this evidence, people say, oh, you're accused. You must be guilty. So I wrote a, a book about it called Guilt by Accusation, where uh, I document all the evidence uh, proving that I never met the woman, but still people say, oh, no, we're not going to let you speak at the 92nd Street Y, even though we know you're innocent because you've been accused. So my final client is myself. I never thought I'd end up defending myself, but that's what I'm doing. So, uh, Alan, you know, one of the things I, I know about you based on reading your books and the little, you know, talking and stuff is that is that legacy is obviously very important to you. And as you're, you know, this part in your career, <coughs> probably more important to you than ever, you know, you, at this part in your career also this is where legacy comes under fire sure and uh i'm sure that's probably more disturbing for you now than it would have been before um how big a deal i mean so like so where you're at now reading and talking about all this stuff and the new book and and all that how big a deal is this for you right now compared to much, where it would have been in years much ago? bigger deal for my family um you know i have a young two young grandkids i have a young daughter and they live in the generation where if you're accused, you're guilty. Uh, they know, of course, they know me. They know I've never had sex with anybody but my wife during the relevant time period. I'm a homebody. I don't hug. I don't flirt. I don't go out to bars. I don't do any of those things. Yeah. So um, so they all know that it's a, a false accusation, but still some of their friends don't. So it's, it's taken a toll, but I'm fighting back. And I won't give up until the woman who falsely accused me goes to prison. And the lawyers who were part of the conspiracy, uh, the extortion, uh, get disbarred. And uh, I hope I'll prevail. Um, the truth's on my side. So I'm not worried. I said in day one, don't worry. There won't be a photograph. There won't be a witness. It didn't happen. So there couldn't be a witness. In fact, somebody went to the lawyer who accused me and, and, and tried to shake him down saying, you know, I have a picture of Alan Dershowitz having sex with this uh, with some young woman. And so they called me and they said, well, we have this picture. I said, no, you don't. If there's a picture, it's obviously fake because I never had sex with anybody like that. And then they showed me the picture and it was absurd. It was some, you know, old guy with gray hair. They had gotten it off the Internet, but they were, uh, you know, trying to use that as a way of uh, uh, extorting me and others. Uh, the plan, it was in the New York Times. The plan was the lawyers 
would call the men who were in the pictures and offer to represent them as their lawyers for a million dollars or even more. And that way, their information wouldn't come out. It was just a pure shakedown. But that's what lawyers do. There are some really, really, really sleazy lawyers operating out there. And a lot of them now are taking advantage of young women and pressuring them into making false accusations. And the end result will be it will discredit the Me Too movement. These women will end up going to jail and the lawyers will put money in their pockets. So uh, you have to be very careful of dealing with lawyers. Uh, for example, David Boyes, a famous lawyer, uh, more ethics charges against him than any lawyer in modern American history. And um, in my opinion, um, his uh, ethics are very, very questionable, and yet people go to him. Um, but uh, he's, thrown his, he's thrown several clients under the bus. And you have to be very careful when you go to a lawyer like, like David Boyes. And his firm is now falling apart, and for, for good reason, because, uh, um, you know, he's a phony. Yeah, so, Alan, you, you brought up a, um, a whole bunch of great points. But one thing that I wanted to mention since he brought that up was questions on, so when we promoted that you're coming on, 99.9% of the people were very excited. And then that small minority asked questions about just this. And they said, yeah, sure. How can you, how can you have this, this guy on the show? And how can, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and why would you associate and, and with, with Alan Dershowitz? And, and to, be, to be honest with you, I see that stuff and I'm tempted to respond and, and defend you. But most of the time, all the time, really, I delete them and block them now. Because I'm like, this guy, there's no point in, in engaging with somebody who thinks that you are this person. There's no point, right? But for you, is there ever a time, like, when you deal with, when you represent somebody that you know might not be um, 100% on the up and up or somebody that you maybe want to associate with, is there ever a time where you have thought in your life, well, like, maybe I shouldn't represent this person, or maybe they don't deserve representation by somebody like Alan Dershowitz. It's not a question of deserving. The Constitution requires that anybody who's charged with a crime have zealous counsel. I have uh, several rules. I don't represent people who are in the business of committing crime, drug dealers, terrorists, uh, the mafia, that kind of thing. And I don't represent people who are fugitives. Um, and I never represent a person who comes back to me after I've gotten them off the first time and uh, has done it again. I say to people, I'll be your lawyer once, but I'm not going to be your lawyer a second time. I'm not going to be a consigliere uh, to your crime family. So, but uh, whether you're guilty or innocent, uh, that is not a factor in what I'll, whether I'll defend somebody. Look, I'd rather defend innocent people. It's so much better if you can really, first of all, it's easier to win if the person's innocent. But second of all, it makes you feel better. But my job is to defend the guilty, the innocent, and the many, many who are in between. There are so many cases where it's a matter of degree and um, where you can do a good job shifting it from 60, 40 to 20, 80 or something like that. And so, um, you know, being a criminal defense lawyer and appellate lawyer requires a lot of subtlety and, um, but I don't sit in judgment over my clients. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I knew the answer to that in the sense that like everybody deserves the, uh, the best defense they can get. Mm -hmm. You as a lawyer, why would you not give your very best to a person? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. I mean, it would be absurd. Uh, it would be like, you know, an athlete going out and uh, not wanting to take the last shot in the game. I'm a big basketball fan. I've been watching, you know, the, the NBA with all those, you know, last second three-point shots with a half a second to go. Uh, I want to be that guy. You know, when I was a basketball player, I loved that. And uh, I'll never forget being carried off the court once because I made a jump shot. 
with about two seconds to go and turn the case around and you know those kinds of things you never forget no i'm sure i'm sure that i'm sure that's the case so so my my good friend louis marco wanted me to make sure to ask you about the me too movement and how you think that affects society as a whole because obviously i mean you're, you're dealing with it now and uh, lots of people including myself you know when i don't i don't put myself alone in a room with any woman other than my wife you know, because of not because of this, but because of my own sensibilities. But yeah, so it applies to today. You know, I have a lot of women that work for us for me, yeah. and, and I don't, I don't, I don't go in a room. I don't take them to my office by myself. Um, and I don't think that's a result of the Me Too movement. But I can see why that would be a lot for a lot of people. Now they would say, "Well, should I interact with a woman alone? How do I deal with this as an employer, or even a, as a normal person?" You know, well, I agree with you. I think, look, the Me Too movement, when they accuse guilty people who have long histories of predatory conduct, has done a lot of good. But these people who are taking advantage of it, you know, it was a great philosopher who once said, every cause starts as a movement, then it becomes a business and ultimately a racket. And we're seeing that the Me Too movement from some people, lawyers, David Boys, and others like that, uh, have become a racket uh, where they exploit young women and uh, turn them into perjurers. And uh, that's a, a very serious matter, and, and we have to stop it. And I'm on a mission to stop that uh, in, the public, uh, in the public interest. Uh, look, the abuses of the Me Too movement, the excesses of the Me Too movement are going to hurt women in general, because I think you're going to see some employers say, why bother? I mean, why hire a woman who might someday accuse me of harassment? Why do I have to uh, deal with this. I'd rather hire a, a man or, um, you know, somebody who um, I know, but to hire a, a woman who's a strange woman who I don't know. It would be a terrible thing if that happened because, you know, women are as competent as men and they ought to be hired, but they're being hurt by the false accusations. And, and um, you know, here you have, I think of myself, I have lived a, a completely honorable personal life, completely honorable. I've never done anything wrong in my personal life, in my romantic life, in my sex life. Never, ever, 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 period. And so what happens is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All you need is one woman falsely accusing you, uh, pressured by her lawyers to do it for money, and people forget the whole rest of your life and just remember, oh, that's the guy who's been accused by that woman. He says he never met her, but boy, why would she falsely accuse him? Well, there are many millions of reasons. Uh, it's called money. And, um, you know, she's already collected uh, millions of dollars and she's trying to get millions of dollars from me. She's not going to get a penny. I would never settle the case in, in, in a million years. And I'm going to fight back until she goes to prison and until her lawyers are disbarred. So with that being said, how... How do you think the Me Too movement has affected the justice system as a whole? Because now you have, it's probably clogged with a lot of these cases that they got to you know, figure out with this all. Well, it's, also, it's also, not only that, it's also uh, telling women that do have a, a case like this woman uh, accusing Alan that you have a legitimate chance. Like, here you are, you can, you can go ahead. And, well, I, yeah, I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying. Is yeah, you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. They'll never prosecute you. They'll never hold you in contempt. Nothing like that. And you throw the, the dice and maybe you'll get six jurors and 12 jurors that will believe you. I don't know how anybody would believe her. She has such a long history of lying about so many people, Al Gore, Tipa Gore, you name it. She's falsely accused so many people. Um, but, um, but she thinks her lawyers have told her she can win a lot of money. And so she's willing to, to do that. Uh, what, 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 a, you know, what this does 
I can imagine to her family, to her children, to her husband. Her husband has to know she's lying through her uh, teeth. And uh, you wonder about her children. Uh, does she care about her children? Or is she just looking uh, to make a, a fortune of money, um, which she's already made? Um, and, you know, she's going to spend the rest of her life being a professional victim and seeking to make money off it. Um, she wants to sell her stories. She already made $160,000 selling stories to uh, tabloids in England. She's collected money in, in settlements and lawsuits, and she's going to continue doing this probably for the rest of her life unless she stopped. I'm going to try to stop her. Yeah, I guess that's part of my question is, you know, because it's allowed to go on, and again, it has it affected the justice system from like a standpoint, yeah. jury standpoint, because it's so commonplace now. It's got to kind of taint people's like. Yeah, but even if it doesn't get to a jury, uh, the accusation alone is enough to destroy careers and destroy lives. It's like McCarthyism. I grew up with McCarthyism. If somebody accused you of being a commie or a red or a pinko, that was the end of your career. Um, you couldn't deny it. You couldn't disprove it. And the same thing now is true. It's just called sexual McCarthyism now. And it has the same impact. It can hurt careers. Fortunately, I have the resources, the will to fight back. I'm 82 years old. I'm in good shape. I walk between seven and 10 miles every day. And I try to keep strong. Uh, the worst thing is when people are accused and they're either too sick to defend themselves, or in some cases they've died and they can't defend themselves. And that's the worst thing when you accuse people who are not able to defend themselves. Uh, this woman and her lawyers picked on the wrong innocent person. I will defend myself to the day I die, and then my wife will take over, and she'll defend me, and then my children will take over, and then my grandchildren will take over. We're never going to, never going to give up until this woman admits or is found to be a perjurer. So obviously when you get your name cleared on this one, I'm sure that'll be your favorite victory of all time. But right. until then, do you have a case that is you know, maybe closest to your heart or just one that is your favorite victory that you've had? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a man named Anatoly Sharansky or Natan Sharansky, he was a Russian dissident who was in jail for spying for the United States. It was totally phony charge. And Erwin Kotler, a great lawyer, and I uh, defended him for eight years, and we finally got him out. He moved to Israel. He became a cabinet member, a very prominent uh, Israeli. And that's my favorite case, because there but for the grace of God go I. If my parents had stayed in Eastern Europe and his parents had come to America, he'd probably be the lawyer and I'd be the dissident in prison and he'd be defending me. So I defended him for eight years pro bono. I do half of my cases pro bonos, human rights cases, civil liberties cases, death penalty cases, poor people's cases, First Amendment cases. Um, I work with an organization called Aleph, uh, a Chabad organization, and they do enormous, terrific work around the world. And so uh, I hope to have the strength to continue to do all this work. So, Alan, on, on the flip side of that, what was the loss that hurt the most? Like, if you think back on your case, three, yeah. I should have won that one. Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike Tyson was totally, completely, categorically innocent. Uh, and uh, we had the evidence to prove it. I was not the trial lawyer. I was the appellate lawyer. But during the appeal, we found four witnesses, um, several witnesses. I don't remember if it was four or three, uh, who actually saw Mike Tyson and the woman who claimed that he raped her going into the hotel room and they were snuggling and kissing and holding each other. And she had testified that she never wanted to be with him and she never touched him and she never kissed him. And the court excluded those witnesses. And the jurors told us afterward, if they had heard about those witnesses, 
not only would they not have convicted, they would have recommended a perjury charge against the alleged victim. And so um, it ruined Mike Tyson's career. He was the greatest boxer at the time. And he's a very nice man, really a lovely man. I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was representing him, he was in prison. Uh, he would get online for an hour. You'd have to wait online for an hour to get to the one phone. And he'd call me. And uh, we talked for a minute. And then he'd hear my daughter, who was then three, four, or five years old, crying in the background. And he'd say, oh, Alan, I hear your daughter. She needs you. I'll get back on the line. Most clients aren't that way. He was so nice. And he ran out of money when he was in prison. And of course, I continued to represent him, as I always do, never expecting to get paid. And the day he had his first fight, he sent me and all the other lawyers full fees that he owed us. He said, I'm an honorable man. I never want to I never want to owe anybody. When he was in prison, he and he didn't have any money. He provided free turkeys for Thanksgiving and Christmas for all the people in his neighborhood. Very, very decent, nice man. I wish I had won the case for him, but I didn't. It's a real regret. Yeah, well, that's that's nice. To and hear. we lost the case two to two. It was a tie vote, two to two. And the fifth judge who would have cast the vote in our favor disqualified himself. And he did it purposely and deliberately. He sent his wife over to talk to me at a Yale Law School reunion to give him an excuse for disqualifying himself. So it was a real scandal. It was Indiana. And um, the Indiana justice system is uh, known for thumb on the scale of injustice. Wow, that's a shame. That's a shame. And uh, Mike Tyson, I feel like uh, that, that I don't know Mike Tyson, obviously, but I feel like that time in prison definitely changed him. And it did. It did. If, you ever, if you're ever in Las Vegas, he has a show that he puts on in, I think, MGM Grand or one of the hotels. And it's just a one-man show, which he talks about his life, talks about growing up in Brooklyn. He grew up only a couple of miles from where I grew up, much younger. But uh, And he talks about life in Brooklyn, on the street, um, very tough growing up, talks about his family. Uh, it's a wonderful show, and uh, anybody in Las Vegas should go to see it. I, I would love to see it. Um, was, you know, Alan, for, for you, you know, you've you represented all these people. And, right. and from Mike Tyson to OJ and everybody in between, even like Frank Sinatra, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so was there ever a moment when you represented somebody that you said, man, you know, once the case was over or during the case that, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done this or. Yeah. Oh, sure. Two. One, Jeffrey Epstein, because it created this issue of me being falsely accused if I hadn't represented her, uh, him, I wouldn't have been falsely accused. And the second one was Leona Helmsley, um, who was just an impossible human being. Um, and uh, she probably was innocent, uh, more or less. It was a gray area. But the reason she was prosecuted for tax evasion on like 1% of her income was because she was the queen of mean. And because she said to people, um, only the little people pay taxes. And, um, you know, see, she, she provoked everybody and uh, turned her own employees against her. And many of them testified against her. So she was her own worst enemy. And uh, she was the only one who ever kind of gave me ulcers. I didn't get ulcers. I give ulcers. But she, um, uh, she was very, very difficult. And she just mistreated everybody. Wow. Um so let's talk about current events. So uh, sure. right now we're dealing with COVID, obviously. Everybody's yeah. dealing with it to some degree or another. Uh, obviously, Florida, we're like moving a little bit past it to some degree mm -hmm. here. And obviously, a lot of states aren't. You got California and a bunch of other states that are dealing with 
whole slew of different and obviously the, right now we have the uk and the eu who we sell supplements to and sure very well over there that are that are now contemplating a whole new shutdown do you think alan is this an overreaction how, how do you feel like now that we've passed through a lot of it do you look back at this and say we should have done things differently i think we should have done things differently but not I don't think we overreacted. I think we underreacted in some degree. Uh, I was in Israel when it first broke out, and I was actually having dinner with Benjamin Netanyahu when he told me that uh, he was going to uh, shut down the country. And he did, and he did a great job. And really, there were very few COVID cases. And then he opened it up too quickly. And now they have many, many cases. And uh, uh, you can't open it up too quickly without at least making sure that people wear masks and, and socially distance. Um, I think the states that opened up too quickly paid a heavy price. The ones who uh, were a little more cautious. Uh, look, but I do think that the government shouldn't be putting small businesses out of business. Uh, there's a clause in the Constitution. It's called the Takings Clause. It's in the Fifth Amendment. It says the government may not take property without just compensation. If the government tells you you can't operate your business in the public interest, they should be paying you um, for the, the losses of, of income. We can't just drive small businesses uh, out. Uh, I love the commercials that I see now. I watch the NBA all the time. So uh, they have these commercials all the time, Google and um, American Express, encouraging people to go back to the small businesses, you know, the little bakery shops, the little candy stores, the little... Uh, soda shops, coffee shops. I, I agree with that. I I love to to frequent uh, small businesses, uh, but today with the COVID, you know, we order our stuff on Amazon. Um, the small stores are suffering terribly, and so um, I would hope the government would do something to help the economic recovery. We have to strike the appropriate balance between not opening too soon and not destroying the economy and not destroying people's lives. It's a very, very hard balance to strike and almost nobody has done it perfectly. I think the best person so far has probably been Angela Merkel in Germany for some reason, maybe it's just luck or coincidence or geography or whatever, but uh, they've had um, far fewer cases per capita than most other countries. Sweden went down the wrong road and um, they try to get herd immunity and they've had uh, terrible terrible results. Uh, other countries have had mixed results. I was in Florida during spring break last year, and these kids were on the beach just as if there was nothing happening. And that's when my wife and I decided to leave Florida and come up to Massachusetts when we saw that there wasn't enough uh, concern about spreading the virus among young people on the beach in Florida. Uh, Alan, do you think, do you think um, at this point, are we, are we too far deep into this to really like is it is it too far gone at this point where no. we have too many cases that it's like you may as well just ride it out at this point no i don't think so i think we have to do a combination of things i think we have to really really focus on mask wearing and open in public places and social distancing i think we have to put all of our energy like a manhattan project into getting a safe and effective um uh vaccine and um, I think we have to strike the appropriate balance. Uh, look, I have you know nephews and nieces who want to go back to school in New York, and they keep being told, no, another week, another few days. We'll see what happens. Kids going to school, you know, bring back the virus home. And 
particularly if you're older, if you have pre-existing conditions, uh, it could be a, a death sentence. We've lost two friends um, my age, uh, older people, and uh, almost lost, very close to losing a young man uh, who I'm very close to, who runs a wonderful organization uh, called United Hatsala, which rescues people. And he was on a respirator um, for 28 days. And most people don't come off that, but he's, he seems to be okay now. So look, this is very serious. And even young people who get it, who have no symptoms, we're now hearing that it has continuing impact maybe on the heart and lungs. And we just don't know enough to be absolutely certain. So we have to take precautions. Alan, so what do you think in terms of like uh, the constitutional issues when you force people to wear masks or you force people to observe uh, these type of things where like, you know, I, I saw something today where a woman was sitting uh, watching a softball game and this is an isolated incidents, obviously, but she was watching her, her son or child or something play a softball and uh, she was arrested because she wouldn't wear a mask with her family by herself on the, on the, on the stands. Where does this, where, where should it stop? Like, should well, you, be she's going to win the case because what's happening is governors are establishing rules and under our constitution, governors don't get to make the laws. Only the legislature gets to make the laws. So when governors tell you, you have to wear a mask or the president tells you, you have to do this or that, it has no effect. Uh, only the legislature can tell you what to do unless the legislature is authorize the governor to take over its function and make 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 rules. So, um, you know, masks are a good thing. I wrote an article early on in the pandemic when people were saying masks weren't important. I said I thought they were, and, and we wear masks every time we, we go out. Um, and um, uh, uh, we insist that when people interact with us, they wear masks. Um, there's a big difference between wearing a mask and closing a shop or not allowing you to go to church or synagogue. Um, uh, wearing a mask is only an inconvenience. The big constitutional issue is going to come up when there are going to be mandatory vaccinations, when the government is going to say, and they're going to do it legislatively, that you must have a vaccine because it's not only you who is being protected by the vaccine, but your neighbors and friends. And that will create a constitutional challenge. And I think the vaccines will win. There's an old 1905 Supreme Court decision on that. Will it be applied today? Probably yes, but we don't know for sure. It's a very quickly changing area of law, so we don't know all the answers. That's that'll be interesting, Alan, because it's like all as a as an adult uh, a parent that has three little kids, you know that if they had to go to school, so we go to my kids go to private school, but if they went to a public school, you know how does that how does that affect? As a parent, like if you don't want that, if you don't want your kids to get it, because they're not, you know, obviously as a child who's a young child under under eight, the chances of them having a fatality based on this is extremely, extremely, extremely small. As you said, they could carry it to somebody else, but yeah, yeah. tiny, like infinitesimal small. So if you're not around somebody else, do you not have the ability to, to say, hey, I don't want my kid to have that? I don't take the flu shot. I never have, and I've never got the flu. Never, ever. Well, you're lucky. Look, you're in great shape. Look at look at your muscles. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, look, uh, uh, flu shots. I take my flu shot every year. I'm getting my flu shot tomorrow. In fact, yeah. uh, we're having a doctor come to the house, a nurse rather, a nurse practitioner. She's coming to our place and she's giving us all flu shots. She's going to do blood tests. And this is going to be basically our uh, medical checkup for the year. But it's going to be virtual. It's going to be through tele 
communications and the blood will be taken from us and it'll be analyzed in a lab, but uh, we're not going to be traveling. They're coming to us, which we're lucky. We have concierge doctor who does this and uh, we're fortunate that we can afford it. Not everybody can afford it and people have to have good medical care. Probably a great many people will be dying not from COVID, but indirectly from not getting good medical care during the COVID. And, you know, if you're old, you have to get checked up. You have to make sure you're not going to have a stroke or a heart attack or something like that. So, uh, again, all of life is a balance. You have to balance the risks. You have to balance the advantages and disadvantages. And everybody is going to balance them a little differently. That's what uh, being free people uh, is all about. I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. Alan, so... One of the things that's interesting that's going on now, right, at this very moment, and it'll probably be going on for quite some time, is jury trials. So obviously that's your cup of tea, right? right. Yeah. Jury trials are, are very, you know, dramatically affected by COVID. How does, how do, in your opinion, how does this affect constitutional, you know, rules and laws based on the fact that you can't have, you can't can actually be in a, uh, have a jury of your peers? You can't, can... Actually, you're accusing your accuser, right? Maybe he's wearing a mask. Maybe he's in a different room. Maybe your jury is in a different room. Well, we can't we can't compromise constitutional rights. Uh, you have to have a right to trial by jury. You have to have a right to confront witnesses, and it has to be live, not by video. Uh, and I think the courts will uphold that. But it also means that people have to be let out on bail. You can't keep people in jail for a year and then postpone trials and say we can't have jury trials. There are too many people locked up uh, without bail. It's a tragedy in our country. And uh, um, I've been working very hard, particularly on behalf of older people who have not been convicted of crimes, trying to get them out so that they can stay at home. Maybe they have to wear a bracelet, a monitor. Um, but there's no reason why they have to be in prison where they haven't been convicted, uh, where they're exposed to uh, COVID. So uh, I, I don't think we should ever compromise constitutional rights, trial by jury, confrontation of witnesses, the ability to subpoena witnesses, privilege against self-incrimination. All of these have to be uh, uh, remain vibrant. Um, you can't compromise basic liberties. And, and Alan, don't these people have a, a right to a speedy trial? Isn't that they do? Um, but uh, you know, the, the the pressure now is waive your speedy trial uh, or. You know, the government has been offering plea bargains uh, to avoid trials, uh, maybe even a little sweeter deal than you'd normally get to avoid the backlog, because there's going to be a terrible backlog. Uh, if a vaccine is developed, there are going to be a lot of people who haven't been able to have their trials, and they're going to want to have them. And um, I think this is a good time probably for some defendants to think about making a deal, and, and particularly if they can get time served or a sentence that they can serve at home or community service that would be the best way for them to deal with it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so I want to move on to Supreme Court drama. Obviously, we talked in the very beginning, and I know you're online listening about our uh, RBG, right? Notorious RBG, yeah. based on the movie, the uh, documentary. And uh, I'm assuming, Alan, did you get a chance to meet her and speak? Oh, I met her many occasions. Um, we grew up not too far from each other in, in Brooklyn. Um, uh, I knew her when she was a young law professor at Rutgers, and then when she was a staff lawyer and the co-founder of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, we worked together. We worked together on some Israel-related stuff early in her a career. Um, when I most recently had lunch with her, we exchanged stories about our mothers, and she had a very interesting point. She said, what's the difference between 
a bookkeeper in the garment district and a justice of the Supreme Court. And her answer is one generation. Uh, her mother was a bookkeeper in the garment district. And I told her my mother was a bookkeeper in the garment district. And so I said, what's the difference between a bookkeeper in the garment district and a Harvard law professor, also one generation? We live in a great country. We're in one generation. You can go from you know, uh, uh, my parents who were not college educated, my grandparents who um, didn't speak English or spoke it with a thick accent, um, to becoming a prominent lawyer, or in her case, a justice of the Supreme Court. Anybody who diminishes the American dream is, is being foolish. It doesn't work for everybody. We have to broaden the American dream to include people of color and Latino and people who are uh, different than the rest of us in some ways. But the American dream is viable and it works for many, many, many people, even many people of color and many people who are immigrants. And so we have to keep the American dream alive and well. And she's a perfect manifestation of it. I didn't always agree with Ruth about particular legal issues. We had some disagreements, um, but uh, she was a very smart, very good lawyer, very good lawyer. She was very creative in the way she approached cases. I knew her husband worked with her husband on one major case, uh, and her husband was a wonderful, wonderful man, very funny, good sense of humor. And the interesting thing is her husband was this joyful, happy rock star. Everybody who knew him loved him. And Ruth was very quiet and very introspective and not humorous. And now at the end of her life, she became this rock star because of the movie. And uh, and the exercise that she did, and you know, she's going to be the first woman ever to lie in state, lie in repose at the Capitol. It's amazing how she became a rock star from a really tiny little person who didn't laugh a lot and didn't have a great sense of humor, and um, you know, she just just did it based not on her charisma but on her uh, brilliance as a lawyer and then as a justice. She really deserves uh, great credit. Um, Alan, you mentioned the American dream, and, and I think that's important that, you know, this is, uh, so I've been all over the world and I've been to, you know, I always think of India. When I think of the American dream, I think of India and uh, Mumbai and uh, New Delhi and the places I've been where it's like, those things aren't even possible. You can't, when you're in the, depending on where you're at, the caste system, right? If you're, uh, somebody that's living on the street that you can never be a Supreme Court justice. You can never be somebody who's going to be powerful and uh, make decisions for this for their society anyway. Yeah, and well, it was that way even in England and many parts of Europe <clears throat> for many years, and that's why I'm so strongly opposed to what the hard left now calls identity politics, where you're not judged by the quality of your character, your hard work, or meritocracy. You're judged by your identity, racial identity, gender identity, ethnic identity. That's just so against the American approach. It recreates a caste system in the United States or a class system or a system based on royal blood and nobility, which we fought against in the American Revolution. And these young people who believe in the cancel culture and identity politics don't understand they're not progressives, they're regressives. They're pushing us back to a time before Martin Luther King's dream, where he said, I want my children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character. That's what a meritocracy is all about. And identity politics is the opposite of that. And and Alan, just for people out there, you were there for the I Have a Dream speech, right? You I was. There. I was there. I was um, with uh, Judge David Bazelon, who I was a law clerk for. We were 
at the periphery. We were basically on like the very end, but, uh, you know, booming microphones. And let me tell you a little secret about that day. It was one of the most boring days of my life until Martin Luther King got up to speak. Um, the speeches that preceded him were terrible. Uh, you know, he every union member, every this and that, everybody had to get, get up and make their seven or eight minutes. Boring, boring, boring. And, you know, a lot of people left. And then suddenly this man gets on the lectern and, and he talks about having a dream. It was just absolutely a remarkable day. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you waited till then. <laughs> yeah, and for me it was hard because the speech was on a Saturday and I was brought up Orthodox and I was a Shomer Shabbat. I was not somebody who would drive on the Sabbath, but I was so anxious to hear it that I stayed with a friend in Washington over the Sabbath so I could walk to hear him uh, make his speech because uh, I had been a tremendous admirer of his for the work he did in the in the South. And I was a law clerk and I had just started my job in the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice circulated a memo saying that members of the judiciary, including law clerks, shouldn't go to the speech because there might be violence. And so we engaged in an act of civil disobedience, me and the judge I clerked for previously, and we went to the speech. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Did you get a, ever get a chance to meet him or no? No, no. I, you know, was in the same room with him, but never had a chance to really interact with him. He came to Harvard when I was there and I went to see him, but never had a, a real personal uh, interaction uh, with him. I, I wish I had. I'm running into a deadline on another uh, interview. So if you have any more last couple of questions, why don't we hit those? Um, last one. We'll start. We'll, we'll, we'll end with this, Alan. And by the way, Alan, I appreciate all the time. Oh, sure, sure. Very generous with your time. I know you're very, very busy and you have a lot of demands on your time. Uh, Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court drama, obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away, which is a terrible tragedy uh, because of the, the, the things that she's done and the commitment she's given to this country and the Supreme Court. Do you think, in your opinion, that filling her seat right now uh, before the new president is the right thing to do? Wrong thing to do. Uh, obviously, you have a lot of insight on this. Well, I don't blame the president for trying to fill the seat. Um, my concern is about the senators. Uh, some of them are my friends, uh, Lindsey Graham, who said in 2016, uh, we should never fill a seat during the year of an election. And you can quote my words back to me. If a uh, Republican president uh, is the president and it's the end of his term, well, now we're all quoting his words back to him and he's trying to make distinctions based on the fact that now both the presidency and the Senate are in the hands of Republicans. When Obama appointed uh, Merrick Garland, he was a Democratic president and the Senate was in the hands of Republicans. Is that really a distinction with a difference? It's the senators who really have to answer to consistency and principle and precedent. The president, look, all presidents try to get their nominees through. Obama tried to get his nominee through. John Adams nominated uh, John Marshall to the Supreme Court um, uh, when he was a lame duck. And we've seen that happen in other situations as well. Benjamin Cardoza was nominated to the Supreme Court by Herbert Hoover, who was a lame duck. So uh, we've seen that happen. And um, I don't know how this one is going to turn out. Uh, right now, there are two senators who are against it. I think they need to find two more. And it may depend on who he nominates. If he nominates somebody who's 
very controversial. He may risk losing one or two uh, additional Republican senators if he nominates somebody a little bit more centrist and more widely acceptable as a consensus. It's likely that he'll be able to get this through. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate. Oh, it. it's a pleasure. You guys ask such good questions. Uh, it's it's a, such okay. an interesting talk show. Thank you. Yeah, I, I loved it, Alan. Thank you so much for being on the show, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And, sure. uh, and I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Be well. That. Thank you. Everybody have a good, happy new year if you're Jewish and fast easily if you fast on Yom Kippur. And if you're not Jewish, have a good new year anyway. Why not? Yeah, why not? Thank sure. you. Alan. I appreciate Take it. Take care. Appreciate it. Well, that was cool. Yeah, I mean, that was cool. 82 so, and pretty, I mean, he's a sharp guy. Is he? Yeah, man. He's 82 and he's, he's he hasn't lost any steps ever, mm -hmm. right? Maybe and if he did lose steps, then then who knows? But it was like what was before. he like? Before? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. must so, have been superhuman. Yeah, he's he's such a cool guy, such a great uh, great person. And you know what? The the truth is, you know, very few people in this life do you ever meet or get to talk to, or in, in this case, maybe if you're watching and listening, get to listen to that is uh, that is this well versed on not only you know constitutional law but life in general. Man. When you kind of think of like the things he's accomplished in his life, most people he's very might... modest, by the way. If you oh, guys listed it all off, people would have lost their mind because if you if you actually look at his CV and what he's done and who he's what he's accomplished, there's there's maybe I hate to say there's nobody alive, but you know there's probably very few people alive that have accomplished more in in America, let alone the world. Yeah, I mean you got to think he's been at Harvard for 55 years, had that legal career. Affiliated with the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, it, again, he's multiple lives. He's an author, like what? 45 books. I mean, it's, yeah. he's unbelievable. And uh, and if you talk, if you were, you know, we, we saw him tonight on on, uh, on the show, of course, and, and you guys got a taste of him. If you were to talk to him privately, you know, he's got so much to say about so many things. And he's so uh, wise based on his own experiences and the things he's done and where he's been, that it's truly amazing to uh, to have an opportunity for you guys out there watching to hear from Alan, and this, like he said, this is this is like what do you say? It was like a TV show. Yeah, for his like TV show. This is not this is not like an interview he normally does because he usually does hit, like news hits. They're like yeah. boom, boom, boom. Alan Dershowitz, here he goes, boom. Three minutes, five minutes, maybe six minutes. Yeah, and that's what's interesting because I was a little positively surprised by the candor because again, usually you're in a talk show setting where you got to be overly, you know, an interview, I guess, situation where you got to be very cautious what you say because that stuff could be taken that sound bite and then spun and oh yeah especially in his his high profile so you know for him to get on and talk openly like when we asked him like what's the worst case for him or people he didn't wish he wouldn't have taken on you know just could have just said well she's not the answer that one. Oh, 100 percent yeah. he he went into all this stuff with epstein which I wasn't expecting. Yeah, you know, I was I shocked on that one. I didn't know any detail on that. I thought that was and like a no-no question. I, I didn't. We didn't have it in the questions, and then I obviously didn't warn him that he actually he wanted he to talk about. It. Yeah. I didn't. We didn't bring it up to him. He wanted to talk about that stuff because he wanted to let people know, like he didn't do anything wrong. And that's one of the interesting things is because, as we mentioned earlier in the show, is that you know there's him and Donald Trump, who he's the lawyer for Donald Trump during his impeachment. But uh, the thing that he's getting more heat about than anything else is the Epstein stuff. And I didn't want to bring that up because I didn't want to look like to him, you know, that he's coming on here to get attacked. Yeah. That was the most no, important thing to me. I wanted him to know that we're going to be, we're like interested in his life. We want to hear from Alan Dershowitz, the man. I want to talk about his legacy. I want to talk about his, you know, what's important to him. But he went into the Epstein stuff on his own because legacy is truly important. And what's important to him the mo most more than anything is what do his kids and grandkids think of him? 
And uh, what is he remembered for? And that's something that I can identify with and I understand where he's coming from. And, uh, and for him, it's, you know, I hate to say, but it's, you know, it's such bullshit. Like he's dealing with this uh, accusations and how do you, so if some, if some woman says you did something, how do you even deal? How can you prove otherwise? So it's a tough, tough situation for him. And I, and I can't help but feel for him where somebody says you did this and you can't prove you didn't do it. No, that's the problem. He ends up the burden. You, yeah. The burden of proof is on you to say you didn't, but and you do, and you, and you push, push, push. But how can you? How do you? You know, prove it. There's no way to prove you didn't do something. No, you have to have a jury of peers hope that they believe. You know, believe your side yeah, of the story. And, and even after then, you know, we have we've had so much shit, and you know, in our our lives, we've been around. You have so much proof of. You know, I bring up this always as a, like the conspiracy theory that I always think is the most ridiculous is 9/11. They say George Bush, George Bush, you know. Uh, Junior or whatever, yeah, um, W. George W. Bush is like he he blew up the towers. He did all this, but you, you know, and, and all that's been proven. You know, we had um, the magazine. What was the magazine called? They did, they did all the details on it. Um, they went to every single detail. You remember that, Ryan? That uh, it was uh, Popular Mechanics. Popular Mechanics oh, really? went into detail on every single thing that people claim, and they proved it all wrong. Every single thing for Popular Mechanics, they showed every single because they're like, oh, fires and melt steel, right? They showed it, yeah, but, but diesel it, fuel turns the napalm. It, and, and that maybe it won't destroy steel, but it will make it less viable to hold a huge load, right? And all of a sudden it crumbles, right? And people are like, no, 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 no. Even you prove everything, right? This one, you know, you prove every single thing, every point. I mean, oh, I don't believe that. Oh, I don't believe it, right? You don't, it doesn't matter. So for unfortunately, for like somebody like Alan, who's saying, like, hey, all this stuff, there's no way you just have to like, you know, keep fighting. And so for Alan, he's going to keep fighting, keep fighting. And, uh, you know, and that's the best they can do. And I think that sucks, man. Well, yeah, you think he's had such a positive career. There's he, never been anything. And he gave such a little like CV. He didn't like put, he's, he's trying he's, to be humble. He's humble. He didn't say like all, he's done so much good things in his life. So one accusation could tarnish the whole thing. Scary thing, man. Scary thing for for humanity, where one accusation could ruin everything. And so, you know, I feel for Alan. I think Alan is a, a very, very good dude. I mean, a very great person, but also a good a good person. Somebody I'm ex excited and happy to associate with. And for people to say like, how can you on the on the internet? How can you associate with him? Like, a bad guy. Like, where the fuck? Where are we? If that's what yeah. you say about somebody like him, somebody that you'd be any other person before this shit would be proud to associate with all of a sudden an accusation. Now, how could you associate with him? And, uh, and that's a scary thing, especially for a person that's not even officially accused of anything. It was just an accusation in a random sphere of, you know, nonsense, the TMZ world that we live in that's now. That's pretty much what it is because that's what we do live in. Yeah. So I, uh, I just want to say, you know, for, for, I'll say for me and you, right? Me and you, we stand behind Alan and I think Alan is one hell of a good guy and I appreciate him coming on the show. Yeah, you don't fight that many years for civil liberties for oh, other people and such a good guy. do something stupid like that. It's yeah. Just... So um, we appreciate Alan being on the show. Thank you guys for watching the show. This is one of the better shows we've had. And uh, yeah. Any questions? Do you have anything? No? Oh, okay, we're good. So I have to use the bathroom. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah. um, so thank you guys so much for watching the show. We'll be back next week. Episode uh, 20. Episode 20. Now, the cool thing is for you guys, the bodybuilding fans out there, that are say you know brought up to me personally kai green kai green kai green will be on october 8th 8th okay he's committed he said i'm doing it that's the thing 
Right. So expect like a four-hour interview. That'll be a long one. That'll be a long one. He'll never be able to get off. So we'll be doing art. We'll be talking about philosophy. Maybe we'll he'll be, paint the whole time. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what we'll do? But uh, Kyle will be on October 8th. But next week, we'll have somebody who knows. We'll figure it out. We're going to have Ryan. Love Ryan. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Do you want to know the secrets the pro gamers use to dominate? War Games, our enhanced gaming nootropic formula, is now available to the public. This professional-grade formula unlocks hyper-focus, enables split-second reaction time, and supports eye health during long gaming sessions. War Games comes in one formula with three great-tasting flavors. Claim your 30-serving War Games right now before it sells out. Limited supply available. Click now to buy. Are you looking to build muscle, burn fat, or just have your pants fit a little bit better? Now's your chance to get the results you want while saving 40% off your order at RedCon1.com. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, use the code WAR40 to save 40% off your entire order. All of our award-winning supplements, including our protein powders, fat burners, pre-workouts, BCAAs, and vitamins are at the deepest discount of the year. RedCon1 is the best supplements to help you reach your goals, but available only while supplies last. Visit RedCon1.com to start saving now.